Apollo 12 was the second lunar mission, launching on November 14, 1969, some four months after Neil Armstrong went down in the history books. Apollo 11 was about as hard an act to follow as you could possibly imagine, but it was up to the crew of Apollo 12 to carry on and expand on the work done by their world-famous colleagues. They were on a mission that was destined for the Ocean of Storms that began itself in an intense thunderstorm that almost ended the journey of Apollo 12 before it had begun. Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It is brought to you this time by Squarespace and HelloFresh. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Stephen Hackett. It's always good to be back in our Apollo series. I'm excited about this. We're back in our tiny little capsule. Who's the third? Who's the third person? Um, We're in the limb, and Mike Hurley's in the command module. Mike Hurley is is the loneliest man in the universe. (laughs) Circling the moon as we descend, yes. So we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Apollo 12. Uh, So let's get started. Yeah, let's get started with the crew. Uh, Let me introduce you to the crew of Apollo 12. The commander is Charles Conrad. We're going to call him Pete, Pete Conrad. The lunar module pilot was Al Bean, Alan Bean. And the command module pilot was Richard Dick Gordon. All three guys have nicknames. uh... They do. The way Boy, this is going to be a trend. They they are uh, they are a tight crew of jokesters mm-hmm. with nicknames. Most of the astronaut crew, of course, were military veterans, veterans, test pilots, etc. So there's a lot of rivalry between the military branches that crossed over into NASA. And Apollo 12 was an all Navy crew and proud of it. So let's start with Pete Conrad. His backstory is really one for the books. It's an amazing history. His parents were actually wealthy. And then were wiped out. Their wealth was basically wiped out by the uh, stock market crash and the start of the Great Depression. Wow. But his mother's family still had a little bit of money, so he was able to go to private school. But he actually uh, flunked out of private school in 11th grade. He was dyslexic. And back then, nobody really understood what that was, and uh, he didn't really get any help. But he taught himself how to work around his dyslexia and did such a great job of it after flunking out of 11th grade that he repeated 11th grade and then went on to 12th grade. And by the time he had finished high school, he had improved to the point where he was accepted to Princeton with a Navy ROTC scholarship. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, talk about the, uh, the focus to do that and obviously getting flunked out of 11th grade focused him and made him realize he was going to be the one who had to save himself and figure out a way to work around his dyslexia. Conrad graduated from Princeton and then entered the Navy in 1953, becoming a naval aviator. He'd actually been flying since he was 16 and he served as a fighter pilot and a flight instructor. Conrad actually applied to be a Mercury astronaut, but was famously cranky and rebelled against both the psychological and physical tests. It's probably not not a good way yeah. in. <laughs> There's a story, and I don't know if it's true or not. There's a story where he he like brought his uh, biological samples and threw it down on somebody's desk at one point. Like he was not. And keep in mind, the Mercury tests were really. Like they just did all these ridiculous tests. They they had not focused it or anything. Mm-hmm. It, it was kind of sadistic. And uh, Pete Conrad didn't appreciate it. He was then assigned to the aircraft carrier Ranger and Miramar Naval Air Station in San Diego. Yep. And that is where in San Diego and on the Ranger, he uh, met his fellow pilot and roommate, Dick Gordon, 
who would go on to be one of the astronauts in Apollo 12. Um, he had actually met Dick Gordon originally at the test pilot uh, school that the Navy had in Patuxent River, uh, Maryland. Gordon grew up in Washington State, graduated from the University of Washington. He was going to be a dentist, but -hmm. the Korean War led him to join the Navy. And in 1953, he fell in love with flying. He, too, became a naval aviator and test pilot and ended up in San Diego with Conrad. Yep, they're all there together. Now, when it came time for NASA to select the second round of astronaut candidates after the Mercury 7, Alan Shepard, one of the Mercury 7 who knew Pete Conrad because he's guys all knew each other, encouraged him to give it another try. He said the testing methods that Pete Conrad hated so much had been refined (laughs) since Mercury. So Conrad applied, and so did Gordon. Conrad made it into the second group of astronauts, the New Nine, in 1962. Unfortunately, Gordon did not. He had to wait until the third group of 14 astronauts was selected a year later in 1963. And in 1966, there was Gordon with his old Navy buddy, Pete Conrad, flying into space together on Gemini 11. Right, which we talked about in a previous episode. Now, the third member of the Apollo 12 crew was Clifton C.C. Williams, another nickname. C.C. Williams was from Alabama. He graduated from Auburn University, joined the Marine Corps in 1954. He was also a naval aviator and test pilot, part of that third astronaut group in 1963. Williams was flying from Cape Canaveral to Mobile, Alabama, to visit his father, who was dying from cancer, when the controls of his T-38 NASA jet failed and put the plane into a steep dive. He ejected, but not with enough time left, and was killed on the scene. The Apollo 12 patch has four stars on it, three for the crew that flew and one for Williams. Yeah, they never forgot C.C. Williams. Um, So what that meant was, though, they needed a third member of Apollo 12, and it ended up being, guess what, another old acquaintance of Pete Conrad's, Alan Bean. Alan Bean was from the Texas Panhandle. He graduated from the University of Texas, after which he joined the Navy. He was a fighter pilot, ended up going to that same test pilot school at Patuxent River, Maryland. Guess what? His instructor was Pete Conrad. (laughs) (laughs) These guys had a really long history together, and Mm -hmm. we'll see how that plays out uh, uh, over the course of their mission. Bean was part of that third class of NASA astronauts and was the backup pilot for Gemini 10, but after that was put in the doghouse and assigned to the Apollo Applications Program, which uh, for all mankind (laughs) calls the uh, Siberia of the Apollo Project, Uh uh, and ended up designing the space station that ended up being Skylab. So when Pete Conrad was given command of Apollo 12, apparently the story goes that he actually asked for Al Bean to be on the crew and Deke Slayton, for whatever reason, didn't think he had it, whatever, turned him down, assigned Williams instead. After Williams was killed, Deke Slayton went to Pete Conrad and said, okay, you can have Al Bean. And so Al Bean, there's a scene in the Apollo 12 episode of the From the Earth to the Moon miniseries where Pete Conrad uh, basically goes into a dusty, empty room where Al Bean is laboring away on Apollo applications and says... Um, it stinks here. Uh, how about you go to the moon with me? <laughs> and his face lights up and he's like, great. All right. And, and that's, you know, more or less what happened. Albine got out of Apollo applications and was now on the primary crew for Apollo 12. So we've talked about the background, this unusual bond between these three astronauts. They weren't all just Navy test pilots with similar backgrounds, but they were a really tight knit unit, maybe the tightest group in the history of NASA. They were basically all best friends. They hung out together in and out of work. 
Yeah. Uh, Pete Conrad actually arranged for all three of them to get gold-painted Corvettes, which was, if you don't remember, that was the astronaut car. Astronauts had Corvettes. There was a dealership in Houston that was happy to supply astronauts with Corvettes. <laughs> I bet. They wanted to be connected to the astronauts. And, and Pete Conrad had them custom-painted gold with their Apollo 12 role designations. So there was a CDR for the commander, CMP for the command module pilot, and LMP on Albines for the lunar module pilot. You know, it's good to be friends with people you work with. I love you too, Stephen. Uh, now, Wava Launch is uh, what most people probably know about Apollo 12. Very dramatic. We'll get to it in a minute. First, let's talk about sandwiches. Yes. Okay, there's this picture of Pete Conrad in his flight suit, and there's a technician putting a sandwich into the pocket on his left thigh. What is that about? <laughs> well, according to a video by NASA historian Amy Shira Title, the crew of Apollo 12 had lunches with them to enjoy during the first part of the flight, before the first official meal time, because there was actually a really long time between their last meal on Earth and takeoff, and they didn't want to be cranky. Now, this is not the same story as Gemini 3, where John Young smuggled on an unauthorized sandwich, corned beef, I think. The ground controllers were very upset because they thought the crumbs were going to fly around and damage the spacecraft. This is at least, uh, this is like an authorized sandwich. It's very important. It's authorized. Officially blessed sandwich. Mm -hmm. I love everything about this. (laughs) It's just like, what'd you do at work today, Dad? Well, I put a sandwich in uh, Pete Conrad's pocket, son. Yep. So I got that going for me. Space sandwich. Okay, so let's get to the launch. Apollo 12 took off from the space coast of Florida on November 14th, 1969 at 11.22 a.m. Winds were higher than any other Apollo launch, and it was pouring down rain, but the launch took place anyways. It's funny, as somebody who sat out a a shuttle launch because they were worried about like the wind being a little bit too high or there being a cloud nearby, it is funny to think of how they just didn't care. Now, President Nixon was there. Uh, His presence dominated the news coverage of the launch. And over the years, some people have wondered if maybe Nixon being there put pressure on NASA to launch, gave them some go fever. And 30 30 seconds after launch, it seemed like uh, they may have made a mistake. Yeah, things got pretty, pretty dicey. Conrad saw a flash out of the corner of his eye and a burst of static filled his headset. Suddenly... The astronauts saw major issues aboard their command module, which was dubbed Yankee Clipper. Communications with the ground were interrupted, and many instruments suddenly threw warnings, and of course, that master alarm was sounding. You don't like to hear the master alarm. It's not good. No. It's not good. Now, the biggest concern was the fuel cells, which were abruptly disconnected from the spacecraft's other uh, systems. The system was designed to disengage the fuel cells in case of a power spike going through the system to avoid further damage to the spacecraft. Controllers on the ground scrambled to make sense of what was going on when everything changed yet again. As most of the warning lights on the control surfaces were lit or blinking and with the fuel cells offline, suddenly at 52 seconds into the flight, all the lights went off and the eight ball attitude indicator spun wildly, unable to gather data from its array of sensors. The hell was that? Yeah. 
Okay, we just watched the platform, gang. I don't know what happened here. We had everything in the world drop out. I can't put, there's nothing I can tell them wrong, Pete. I got three fuel cell lights and 18 bus lights, fuel cell disconnect, 18 bus overload, one and two, main bus A and B out. As the ground continued to grapple with the intermittent garbled data streaming back from Apollo 12, static is all that passed between the crew and the ground in Houston. John Aaron, who was a 24-year-old NASA flight controller in charge of the spacecraft's electrical system, figured it out. A year before the launch of Apollo 12, Aaron happened to be in mission control during a launch pad simulation, which briefly included scrambled data like what Houston was currently seeing. Then it had been caused by someone accidentally dropping the power voltage to the capsule. It shows you the importance of just repeating these things over and over again because Definitely. everybody involved in this, their minds go to the outliers and not to the things that happen every time. That voltage change a year before in a simulation had caused a part of the spacecraft called the signal conditioning equipment to go nuts, just to be like, I did not know what's going on. And it's a little tiny part of the incredibly complex Apollo command module was responsible for converting raw data from the craft's huge collections of sensors, so all of the sensor information, to information that could be displayed on instruments and sent back to Houston. If it was malfunctioning, no one could actually see what was going on with the spacecraft, with the real data, as it kept climbing higher and higher from the pad during this launch. So during that simulation a year before, uh, John Aaron learned that switching SCE, this, this little switch, to its backup power mode would effectively reboot the instrument panel. Yeah, you're basically turning it off and then turning it back on. It's <laughs> the biggest example of that I can think of. It, it's different because it's the aux. So the idea is you've got two on positions. So if one of the ons fails, you've got a backup. And so by switching it to auxiliary, you're flicking from the main to the backup, but you're also repowering the panel. Power down, power back off. And so... This flashes in his mind, pattern matching. John Aaron's sitting there thinking about it. They're in the middle of the launch. It's like a minute out uh, of off the launch pad. And he says, I know what we need to do. We need to set SCE to aux. The problem is no one else knew what this meant. <laughs> no one had ever heard of this. No one remembered this, this obscure switch on the bottom right-hand side of the, of the panel. Someone asked if he meant to say SEC to off, not understanding the word aux, but the engineer insisted. And uh, this really speaks to, I think, the the ethos in the mission control room where you trusted the people below you. He he was confident of this call. So even though the Capcom, Gerald Carr, didn't fully understand it, he called it up to the crew. Yeah, the flight controller and the Capcom didn't know what he was talking about, but they went with the 24-year-old engineer who was very confident that this would solve the problem. Now, up in space, Conrad and Gordon are on their way to space, I guess. Uh, they were just as confused by all this as the flight controller and Capcom on the ground. And they, they were trying to clarify what this means. I mean, what's SCE? Did they say FCE? SCE? What is it? And then there's Albine. Albine is like, oh, yeah, that's one of mine. I got that right over here. He remembers it. It's obscure, but he remembers he's got it. He knows what it means. He reaches out. He flips SCE over to Ox. Here's a little bit of audio from Failure is Not an Option, which talks about the ordeal. Apollo 12 went on to make the second moon landing. In the control center, John Aaron's call. 
Sceita Ox became legendary. If you took a poll of all of the people and asked them who was the most capable flight controller uh, to ever sit in mission control, I think the majority of them would say John Air. Well, it might as well have been magic. Data from the <laughs> spacecraft suddenly starts, just it goes back to normal. The control panel comes back to life. There are no errors. And in sudden relief, Pete Conrad calls out, I don't know what happened. I'm not sure we didn't get hit by lightning. We're okay. Now we're figuring out our problems here. I don't know what happened. Uh, I'm not sure we can get hit by lightning. I think we need to do a little more all-weather testing. Amen. Uh, PPO2, I Well, turns out, Pete Conrad, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, I mean, he saw the flash, right? So he's putting it together and he's thinking, you know, I wonder if that's what that was. But they solved it, SCE to Ox. Um, now, as the Saturn V was climbing into the atmosphere, it left a wake of charged particles behind and below it, which it turns out made it the world's largest and fastest lightning rod. <laughs> this had not been an issue for previous launches, but the bad weather at the Cape was fuel just for this kind of event. Lightning had struck the outside of the spacecraft, traveling down the spine of the Saturn V, reaching all the way to the launch tower. And then it happened a second time. Even after Aaron's SCE call had rebooted Yankee Clipper, it was unknown what had happened and what sort of state the spacecraft was in. The ground and flight crews worked to check out everything they could before moving forward with the translunar injection to put Apollo 12 on course to the moon. Conrad replied to the call that the crew was ready and not expecting anything else while Capcom joked back, we didn't train for anything else. <laughs> now, even as the TLI was approved, there were some lingering fears about the command module's reentry parachutes. It was possible that the strikes had set off the explosive bolts holding their enclosure together, but there was no way to verify this or do anything about it if they were damaged. So Houston decided not to alert the crew to their concerns. Basically, it, they could go through their whole mission Anyway, it wasn't going to make any difference, but there was this slight chance that they wouldn't be able to deploy parachutes upon reentry. But there's literally nothing they could do about it. Right. There's no rescue plan in the Apollo era. So You're... go to the go to the moon and we'll see what happens when you get back. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain name, the use of award winning templates and much more. If you think about what you may need in a website, I bet it includes things like an online store or a portfolio, a blog, maybe you want to host a podcast, where Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do all of those things. And there's nothing to install, there are no patches to worry about, no upgrades are needed. You just don't have to worry about that kind of stuff because Squarespace has got it covered. 
If you have any questions, they have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need anything. They let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name for your site. And all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. I've been building a couple of small websites in Squarespace. One, actually, (laughs) pretty big site in Squarespace. And it's really cool. Those themes are great, but sometimes you need to go in and and do your own thing in CSS. And they have a custom CSS option, so you can easily override what the theme is doing, customize it to your heart's content. And it's uh, it's really straightforward. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com slash liftoff. When you decide to sign up, use the offer code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and to show your support for the show. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash liftoff and the code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. We thank Squarespace for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. Now, after all the excitement, the crew is in space. They get yes. to enjoy those sandwiches that they had in their pockets. Hooray. Uh, three days in, the issue of food came up again. And I just want to play audio from this part of the mission. The narrator's voice here is NASA's press officer. Listen to this. This is Apollo Control Houston at uh, 57 hours, uh, 35 minutes. Uh, now to the flight Apollo 12. Capsule communicator Don Lind uh, has uh, just chatted with uh, Al Bean on the subject of tuna fish spread. We'll tune in on that now. Hello, uh, Houston Apollo 12. Uh, go ahead, uh, 12. How about asking the food experts down there? Uh, we had a uh, can of uh, tuna fish spread salad last night. Yeah, there's about a half a can left today, and that stuff's still good to eat, isn't it? We'll check. I'll be right back with you. Thank you. Uh, 12? Go ahead. Uh, the surgeon suggests you try a new one. New can. Well, Dick has this one in his hot hand, and uh, we just opened it last night. Uh, Apollo 12, Houston. Go ahead. Uh, we're still checking with some people down here whether there's any problem over that tuna fish, but why don't you hold off eating it until we get a better answer for you. Okay. This is Apollo Control, Houston. At least for now, the uh, consumption of tuna fish spread uh, one day opened remains an open item. We'll keep you posted on developments. At uh, 57 hours, uh, 37 minutes into the flight, uh, this is Apollo Control Houston. This is Apollo Control Houston at uh, one, at uh, 57 hours, uh, 44 minutes into the flight, Apollo 12. Apollo 12's altitude now reads 168,882 nautical miles. Its velocity now 2,635 uh, feet per second. We've uh, closed the uh, tuna fish question. We'll switch now to uh, Don Bean's or uh, Don Lynn's conversation with the spacecraft. Apollo 12, Houston. Go ahead. You can't imagine what consternation your tuna fish question has raised down here. 
We have a wide diversity of opinions. I the, well, uh, I decided it was okay. Well, we have a vote that it's okay. The majority says throw it away. There's a minority report that says everybody can eat it except Dick Gordon. Okay, that's good. Roger, they recommend that you uh, probably throw it away. Okay. At uh, 57 hours, uh, 45 minutes into the flight, uh, this is Apollo Control Houston. You know, in covering these Apollo missions, it's often the small moments that are the most fun to revisit. Uh, thankfully, no one <laughs> ate that old tuna, and uh, ground control later passed on that Albine's wife was very glad that he did not partake in the already opened fish. You would hate to have a tuna emergency in space. Mm-mm. You mm-hmm. don't want a tuna emergency anywhere, let alone space. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well, he, space would be worse, like like camping or something, where yeah. it's like I'm not near <laughs> a doctor. But yeah, in general, to be avoided, any tuna emergencies. Yes. Beyond the tuna question which is very important. The crew also commented on the state of the windows in the command module. Like aboard Apollo 11, the crew had noted that the windows were contaminated while leaving the atmosphere, leaving them streaked and dirty. The rain at the launch pad for Apollo 12 had only made the problems worse, limiting the crew's ability to take photos out of some of the windows. Get a, get a wiper on there, something like that. So down the window and get a squeegee, you know? Yeah, yeah. So on November 19th, the lunar module, which is called Intrepid, separated from Yankee Clipper. And uh, Bean and Conrad are on board. Here we go. Unlike Apollo 11, where Neil Armstrong had to manually direct the LEM to the landing site, however, Intrepid's landing was made with precise measurements taken by uh, uh, monitoring, actually, the mm. Doppler shifts from the, L- from the uh, LEM radios. A very clever idea that they came up with to get precision. Um, and then, of course, the computer control of the spacecraft. Conrad had to input little corrective actions, but Intrepid did what it was supposed to. It landed 580 feet from its target, proving that they could land where they wanted to. This automatic precision landing was a big deal. It meant that NASA could set a limb down in areas with more rough terrain, getting astronauts to more interesting and varied landing sites. Now, this landing site was in an area of the moon named the Ocean of Storms. Very dramatic after you've been struck by lightning. And it had been visited before by... Uh, a bunch of different robotic missions, Luna 5, Surveyor 3, and Ranger 7. And during their EVA, one of the goals of the of the moonwalk was to visit Surveyor 3. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Before we get there, though, we have to listen to Pete Conrad's first words on the moon. Okay, got the old camera running. Yeah, that's right. His first words on the moon were a joke about that he wasn't very tall. He, he's five six, and so quite a bit shorter than Neil Armstrong. I think six feet was the height limit. There's a story actually about uh, about CC, the original third member of the crew, who was just a hair over six feet tall, bouncing up and down to compress his spine um, the night before the physical, so that he would be approved. But uh, Pete Conrad. Not a problem. Uh, he was he was not close to the height limit. However, it turns out that his first words were not just a throwaway line made on the spur of the moment. It turns out that Conrad, true to his prankster nature, had made a $500 bet with Italian reporter Oriana Falace that he would say that line 
she had asked about Armstrong's famous one small step, uh, wondering if that had been fed to him by NASA PR. Later, Pete Conrad said he was never actually going to collect the bet, but he did kind of want to prove the point that he could kind of say whatever he wanted in that moment. And he did. I kind of view it, too, as him sort of standing up for Armstrong that he came up with that, that it wasn't fed to him by marketing people. Um, right. I, I like this. And it is really, it's such contrast to Apollo 11. But Conrad's first words were emblematic of a culture uh, on Apollo 12. We're not saying these guys were unprofessional, but compared to the crew of Apollo 11, Mm-mm. they were much looser, much more relaxed. Conrad, in particular, had a reputation for sort of being irreverent. You spoke about his Mercury testing days. We have this. Like, it was just a a more relaxed sort of environment around this mission. He's a character, that Pete Conrad. So uh, their lightheartedness spread to the personnel who helped them train. One place this turns up is the wrist-mounted mission plans on the EVA suits that the astronauts wore. These booklets contained instructions on setting up various pieces of equipment on the lunar surface and... As it turns out, hand-drawn topless women and photos of topless Playboy models that were added by the backup crew. Oh boy! <laughs> and it's a it's a, it's public, right? Mm-hmm. You, it's you public. found them. You can go find these on NASA's website today. They're out. They're out there. Yeah, not safe for work, but safe for NASA. <laughs> I guess uh, the pranks didn't end there. In several places, mission documents were altered to work Al Bean's last name into sentences and puns. Because with a name like Bean, I guess you're ripe for it. They're the first human being on Mm. the moon? Well done. Conrad even let Bean take control of the ascent module on the far side of the moon, away from Houston's all-seeing eyes. It's a it's a sweet story, right? Because the lunar module pilot never actually flies the lunar mar- module. It's all the commander. And so when they were on the backside returning up to the uh, to the command module, he uh, let Albin take the controls a little bit and get a feel for it. Which is uh, it's a sweet moment that he let his uh, he let his his colleague have a have a moment to fly that strange craft. Um, and Houston didn't need to know. Now. Uh, before we get back to the science, uh, because there was a lot of it out there on the lunar surface, we need to mention Albine's clumsiness, kind of uh, comedic in nature. Apollo 12 had the first color TV camera, to, uh, so they're going to be broadcasting from the lunar surface in color. Unfortunately, when Albine was carrying it out to its uh, its far away from the uh, the capsule, far far away from the limb uh, setup point. Uh, while while carrying it, he was pointing the lens into the sun, uh, which fried the sensor. Whoops. So <laughs> that was the end of color TV on the moon for Apollo 12. It was just over. Also, speaking of photographic mishaps, Albin was going to use a self timer, which was his idea for the Hasselblad camera. They were going to they were going to take a selfie. They were going to set it up, and it was with the timer they were going to be able to get both of them in the shot. Whereas all the shots on Apollo 11 were Buzz, um, maybe with Neil reflected in Buzz's uh, reflective dome on his helmet. Right. But um, but th- you know there were no shots of the two astronauts together and so he he set this up threw it in a bag but then they picked up a bunch of moon rocks and uh in that bag and then he was looking for it and he couldn't find it and they finally uh they just uh they gave up and moved on and right at the end of the eva as they're unloading the rocks and stuff he he finds the timer and he just chucks it as far as he could (laughs) across the lunar surface like stupid timers 
stupid showing up now and throws I'm going to throw you on the moon. Can you imagine if you're the technician responsible for getting that film developed and you're sorting through the images in the dark room and all of a sudden there's a picture of the astronauts together? It's like, who took that picture? What? <laughs> How did that? Yeah, it's not authorized. What happens here? Okay. Um, Al Bean versus the cameras was not done during Splashdown. One of the film cameras that they carried with them in the capsule to take shots out the window and stuff, 16 millimeter film camera, uh, came loose from its, stor- its storage space. He was supposed to secure it, but he didn't. Um, and he paid the price because in the splashdown moment, it flew out of the storage space and smacked him straight in the forehead. Mm. He was briefly unconscious. He suffered a mild concussion and he needed six stitches. Oh, wow. Come on, buddy. Come on, Al. Poor Al. Come on, man. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by HelloFresh. HelloFresh makes cooking delicious meals at home a reality regardless of your comfort in the kitchen. From step-by-step recipes to pre-measured ingredients, you have everything you need to get a wow-worthy dinner on the table in about 30 minutes. Break out of your dinner rut with HelloFresh's seasonal chef-curated recipes each week. There's something for everyone from family recipes to calorie-smart recipes to vegetarian recipes and a lot of fun menu series like their Hall of Fame and their Kraft Burgers. HelloFresh has more five-star recipes than any other meal kit, so you know you'll get something delicious. It's flexible. You can add extra meals to your weekly order. You can add tasty add-on treats like garlic bread or cookie dough. Now, I am a tough customer for something like HelloFresh. Um, We don't have pork in the house. We don't have fish in the house. I am uh, gluten-free. And you know what? We managed to get three delightful HelloFresh meals in a box this week. And they've all been super tasty and able for everybody in the family to eat. Could not have been easier uh, the way it works. They, I, I should say they don't have a gluten-free plan, but they have everything is marked about what's in it. And so you can pick what you want to get to fit your desires. Whether you're on a, a, a strict diet or whether you just have picky people in your house, you can choose the meals that you want. It's uh, very nice. You can get nine free meals with HelloFresh by going to HelloFresh.com slash liftoff9, the number nine, and use the code liftoff9. That's HelloFresh.com slash liftoff, followed by the number nine, and use the promo code liftoff9 to get nine meals free. Thank you to HelloFresh for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Okay, let's talk about Apollo 12's work on the lunar surface. This mission spent nearly eight hours out of the limb exploring the moon. Keeping in mind, the Apollo 11 was only on the moon for 21 hours total and out on the surface for less than three. This was a much longer mission. Yeah, for sure. They just wanted, you know, it was quick in and out on 11. 12 got to spend some time there. But like on 11, the first objective was to collect a contingency sample of lunar dust in case an emergency took place before the end of the EVA. So they have the stuff that they really, really wanted to have in case they needed to blast off pretty quickly. Once that was done, they deployed an antenna. Albin murdered the television camera and uh, they continued on. I guess they had to eat the sandwich first so that pocket was free. Yeah, yeah, and then you probably probably not the same pocket, but and probably probably not. Mm-hmm. Also, you got to build up your strength so you can. Uh, true. Kill the TV camera. Yeah. <laughs> Twelve flew with its own solar wind composition experiment, as did Apollo Eleven. This was designed to capture particles in the solar wind by using thin aluminum foil sheets. It was exposed on the surface for eighteen hours before being packed up to return to Earth for study. 
The crew also deployed the Apollo Lunar Surface Experiments Package, or ALSEP. Pretty good. Yeah. Which consisted of many instruments to study the moon and its thin atmosphere. Scientists learned about the moon's magnetic field, its tenuous atmosphere, and its seismic activity through those instruments. The ALSEP was nuclear-powered, so while later missions would deploy ALSEPs that would run for several years, 12s did return seismic information when the ascent stage of Intrepid slammed into the moon after being jettisoned. That's pretty cool. The crew also walked the short distance to that Surveyor 3 probe, making this the only time in history that humans have visited a probe on another planet, or another world, anyway. Wait, The Martian isn't a documentary? No, no, but I love this idea. It's like the ultimate in, uh, like, junk finding at the beach. They're like, hey, Surveyor 3 is here. Yeah. Well, it turns out that they uh, they were there for purpose. It wasn't just a yard sale. Conrad and Bean were tasked with taking parts of the lander to return home for study. NASA wanted to understand the long-term effects of the harsh lunar surface on various types of hardware, including the camera. This means they brought some moon-rated bolt cutters and yeah. snipped off the camera and part of the frame of the craft to bring it home. Just be sure what you cut with those bolt cutters, but I love that idea. They're just chopping parts yeah. off of this thing and bringing them back mm-hmm. to Earth. It's great. Uh, the crew also observed the effects of lunar dust on the lander's surfaces, which were sandblasted by material as Intrepid touched down just 660 feet away. Something to keep in mind if you build a, a moon base, you're going to get sandblasted by everybody who's landing. We mentioned Intrepid landed about 580 feet from its design touchdown point, and that was closer. Uh, it ended up being closer to Surveyor 3 than initially desired. But uh, yeah, you need to understand that the lunar surface is, is jaggedy, and when fired at high rates of speed, you know, displaced by a decent motor, it can it can really uh, te- tear some paint off things, it turns out. Yeah, and the gravity's not going to pull it back down to the surface for quite a while. Right. It's widely claimed that a common type of bacteria accidentally contaminated the surveyor's camera prior to launch, and that the bacteria survived dormant in the harsh lunar environment for two and a half years, supposedly then to be detected when Apollo 12 brought the camera back to Earth. This has not been confirmed by NASA, and many independent investigators question the claim, but it does make for interesting questions in terms of planetary protection. It is more commonly thought that bacteria made their way onto the camera after it was returned to Earth. So. Yeah, I think that, that makes more sense. Right. But it, it does. I mean, we have these protocols now for everything. Mm-hmm. Like, try, you, you really want to not have anything alive on the spacecraft. And, uh, you know, if you are flying a spacecraft around Saturn or Jupiter, just crash it into the planet and right. don't take chances. Bingo. In 2009, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter photographed the Surveyor 3 site in detail. Images include the limb's descent stage, the ALSAP, and even astronaut footprints on the surface. There are also, by the way, down there, several rolls of film from the EVAs that uh, were left behind accidentally by Albine. Albine. Oh, man. Versus cameras. <sighs> oh, boy. After 31 hours on the surface, it was time to leave. They fired up the ascent engine for Intrepid, and our happy crew of three was reunited. In orbit. The command module spent a total of 89 hours in orbit around the moon. They stayed in orbit an extra day for some photography. Albine didn't lose that film, so that's good. (laughs) Uh, On the return flight, the crew of Apollo 12 also photographed a solar eclipse as the Earth passed between them and the sun. Yankee Clipper splashed down on November 24th, 1969 in the Pacific Ocean. Today, the command module is on display at the Virginia Air and Space Center in Hampton, Virginia. And in 2002... The mission's S-4B upper stage was spotted by astronomers. 
This is a really fascinating footnote to this whole story. So this stage uh, entered an elliptical Earth orbit with a period of approximately 43 days after passing the moon in 1969. So a lot of S4Bs crashed into the moon. This one went went past it and then entered entered orbit. Sometime later, it entered into orbit around the sun via Lagrange point, which we've talked about those in other episodes where the gravity of two bodies sort of reaches equilibrium. And what can happen there is objects can pass from one orbit into another. And that's right. what happened to the this S4B just to come out of solar orbit again in 2002, when it's spotted by telescopes, like you said, it has since returned to an orbit around the sun where it remains today. Let's talk about what happens next for the crew. Apollo 12, not the last adventure of Pete Conrad, so I suppose we'll be uh, hearing from him again. He went on to command a Skylab mission in 1973, and what a mission it was. It is actually quite a story and contains the thing that Pete Conrad says he is the proudest of of anything he did as an astronaut. But that, again, story for another episode. Uh, he then retired from NASA and the Navy. He ended up spending many years working for McDonnell Douglas, the aerospace company. He was briefly in the 70s, much more famous than he ever was as an astronaut because he appeared in an American Express commercial. Uh, you're too young to remember this, but there was this campaign that was, Do You Know Me? And it was people that you didn't you didn't know, but you recognized their name. And the idea was that American Express card opened doors for them, whether you knew who they were or not, and it could do the same for you. And so his was, Do You Know Me? I walked on the moon. And apparently for quite a while, uh, while that ad was running, um, he he suddenly was recognized and he, he found it very uncomfortable. <laughs> It's like, please, can I go back to my anonymity of being the unknown astronaut? Um, anyway, uh, sadly, Pete Conrad died in 1999 from injuries he sustained in a motorcycle accident. And while that is tragic, I also want to say how awesome it is that Pete Conrad in 1999 is just riding around on his motorcycle up and down the California coast and other places. And uh, very sounds like Pete Conrad to me. Dick Gordon was scheduled to be the commander of Apollo 18, but as we know, that was canceled, and he ended up retiring from NASA in 1972. He worked in various corporate jobs throughout the years and died in 2017. Now, what I want to say is that Al Bean went on to be like an executive at a film company, because I think that would be amazing. <laughs> uh, but no, he actually had one more space mission left in, in him, too. He was the commander of Skylab 3, the mission after Pete Conrad's in 1973. So finally, all that Apollo applications knowledge came to use. Mm -hmm. He left NASA in 1981 to devote more time to painting. Al Bean was a painter quite a painter, and he spent the rest of his life painting images of space and the moon. And he would talk often about how you're not going to find any other painter who can paint the moon, the surface of the moon, from memory. But Albine could do it because <laughs> he was on the moon. Uh, in 2009, for the 40th anniversary of the moon landing, his paintings were exhibited, exhibited at the Air and Space Museum, and he passed away in 2018. So that's Apollo 12. That is. It's not to be forgotten, even though it was definitely a tough act to follow 11. Um, yeah. These guys were characters. They did their jobs. They did a precision landing. They survived a lightning, double lightning strike. A lot to be commended. Um, don't mention the uh, leaving the film behind and losing the timer. and all. Don't mention all of Albine's adventures with film. But otherwise, uh, pretty cool stuff and a fun crew. I think, I think these guys would have been uh, fun to be around. 12 also lives in the shadow of 13, right. which we will talk about in April. We have a little bit of a gap now. 
uh-huh. between our Apollo episodes. But yeah, 12 shouldn't be forgotten. They they really proved that 11 wasn't a fluke in a lot of ways. Like that's the most, to me, the most compelling story about 12 is that it proved that this was repeatable and they laid the groundwork for a lot of future work and, and even longer stays on the moon. Yeah, and I think the um, the lightning strike is actually showing a resiliency. There was a little bit of that on 11. There, the lightning strike on 12 kind of laying the groundwork, too, for um, the massive problem solving that had to be done for 13. Well, if you want to read more about Apollo 12 or watch a bunch of videos about it, we have lots of stuff in the show notes at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 112. While you're there, you can get in touch via email. There's also a link to our blog where we post stories and, and stuff in between episodes. And of course, you can get in touch on Twitter. You can find Jason there, there as Jay Snell. And you can follow me on Twitter as ISMH. Until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. <laughs>